created live on Fireside. <laughs> well, you rub off on me. Well, I mean, you just sent me a voice note early on, and you emulated the English accent so beautifully. Bloody hell! <laughs> Ah, how sweet the sound. Welcome, everyone. It's a pleasure to have you as we congregate together at this hour every given day of the week on this given day of the week. Every given day of the week? This day of the week. Ah, you know what I mean. This is Doing It Sober Live, courtesy on Fireside Chat from South Africa. My name is Chris Nell, and opposite me, the lady who puts the bell in Southern Bell, Daniela Park. It's a pleasure to have your company. And without hesitation, our guest has joined us. Let's make him feel special by introducing him, shall we? Now, for our regular listeners, if we should have any, which I'm sure we do have in droves, and for our new audiences, if you have been following this show for any given measure of time, you'll have come to learn that child neglect and often abuse may have led to the breeding of drug addiction. Tyism, as it may have seemed to some in society, hearing the same thing time and time again, the curtain is pulled back and the faults of individuals are laid at their very feet. And in starker contrast, judgment is reserved rather purely by the court judge and the judgment of the deity. What is overlooked by society, we should add, is how we... The sober and the daring consistently raise issues without the help of normies, but rather through one another. Why? Because we become more informed, we become more inspired, and less judgmental. However, what we do thrive in is speaking the uncomfortable truth, and you can't get that on a news masthead. And the truth is, you, the normies, can't hurt us anymore. And thus, Reverend Rex is a disciple in this premise. A former heroin addict and a current certified life coach among many titles in his oeuvre, he has spent his time teaching many former addicts and the like about self-love through many practices upon which he will elaborate. He has expanded on his skills through means of a podcast now entitled No Love, and he is currently underway spearheading prep for a coast-to-coast biking event, which is due to kick off in the month of June, the year of our Lord, 2023. Reverend, it's a pleasure to have your, make your acquaintance. Welcome to Doing It Sober Live. Thank you for having me. It's awesome to be here. Uh, did you say you're in South Africa? That's correct. That's awesome. Um, that's actually one of the places I would like to visit someday. Not in this current climate. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, I don't feel like the world's going to get any better. I mean, I hope it does, but I, I tell my kids all the time, I'm like, enjoy it because it's probably not, this is probably as good as it's ever going to be. Um, <laughs> I'm a reverend. I uh, I think we're living in some pretty heavy times right now, but um, that's for another show, another time. Um, sure, sure. Thanks for having me on. Um, it's great to be here. Uh, I've watched a couple of your shows. I don't like to do a lot of investigation on the podcast that I'm going to be a guest on because I like it to be organic. Like, I don't like to see if there's an agenda, you know, I like to let it just kind of flow. Um, That's the name of the game. You're speaking our language, son. And uh, I discovered you guys though. uh, I watched uh, Tim Logdon's uh, episode. He's uh, Oh, Tim. Yeah. He's a good friend of mine. He was actually one of the first guests. Sweet chap. Love him to pieces. Well, I I would like to talk. Let's start with, you know, 
obviously addiction is part of your story, but you know, today we're talking about suicide along with everything else, but suicide is part of your life as well. Also you, it is, it's, it's a huge part of my story. Um, <clears throat> uh, let me just give you a brief run through. <clears throat> um, I was born and raised, um, in South New Jersey, um, on the East coast U S um, and for the first five or six years of my life were pretty okay. Um, I don't really have any memory of them. Um, but uh, when I was six years old, I spent my sixth birthday in a courtroom with the guy I thought was my dad um, until the end of the day when the judge said something along the lines of like, well, it looks like he's not coming. So I award the adoption complete. He's yours until he's 18. And like, I'm sitting there six years old. Like, what does all this mean? Right. <laughs> I mean, I knew what adoption was because there was other kids in my school who got made fun of for being adopted. Yeah. Um, and uh, so my dad's telling me on the way home, he was like, I'm not your real father. He's like, I'm your real mother's father. I'm your grandfather on your mom's side. He's like, and your real father was just released from prison in Texas a few months ago and was supposed to be here to claim custody. And he didn't show. About two weeks later, uh, he asked me, he said, hey, if you had to choose who you're going to live with, me or your mom, who would you pick? And, you know, I'm a six-year-old boy. My dad's my hero. So I'm like, well, you. Uh, that turned out to be the most important decision I'd ever made in my life because a couple weeks later, we ended up moving in with the woman who would be my stepmom and who for the next years would be the greatest abuser in my life. Um <sighs> Uh, shit. of moving in with her um i don't really remember the circumstances i just remember um it ending um she had my head pinned into the corner of a couch and she was beating oh. me on the back of the head with a ladle uh and my younger stepbrother was screaming at her to stop and she stopped she tried to get the bleeding to stop she couldn't so we had to go to the hospital and on the way to the hospital uh we had to go see my dad first. He was a head groundsman at the local college that was in my hometown. And uh, we had to go get the insurance card. And um, oh my so the story was is that I was to tell him that I was running through the kitchen and I slipped on the freshly waxed linoleum floor and hit my head on the dishwasher and it needed stitches. And so we get the insurance card and we're on the way to the hospital and she pulls over in a dirt lot and she turns the car off and she turns around and looks at me in the back seat. And she said, if you ever tell anyone the things that go on in our house, I'll kill your dad. Jesus. And, uh, and that was exactly what she needed to say to get me to believe her. And I never told, uh, hmm. the abuse wasn't just physical. Uh, my two older step siblings, um, sexually molested me. Um, she wow. used to take kitchen utensils and shove them up my butt and snap oh, the with rubber bands. Fuck. When my dad would go to his uh, weekend warrior for the National Guard thing, uh, there were times when she'd put me in a long sleeve and duct tape my hands together and throw me in a closet in the basement for the weekend. Uh, that went on. The, the sexual abuse went on until I was about nine. I fought back on that. Uh, they came into my room one night and I had a knife. <laughs> And that ended, uh, the physical abuse, it slowed down, but it got more intense. Um, <clears throat> the psychological abuse was, was terrible. Um, and then when I was 12 years old, I fought back. I beat the shit out of her. My dad who claimed to have never known what was going on. Um, which I don't really disbelieve because he was a career army man who 
was in Korea for the entire Korean War. He was in Vietnam and Cambodia before the Vietnam War when the French were there. And then he did three and a half years in Vietnam. Like, I can't imagine his level of PTSD that he had, you know. Um, plus, he came from a really, his mother, he was born at the end of the Roaring Twenties. And his mom dumped him with her mom and went off to just be an alcoholic slut. So like, you know, there's CPTSD, you know what I mean? Like there's, and then like mm, now mm. later in life, I can see this and it just adds to the level of forgiveness and my love for him, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, good on you. I, I, I thank you. Uh, it took a lot of work to get there. Um, naturally I got kicked out for fighting back. Um, it was the middle of winter in mm. the Northeast and it was cold and I had friends that I stayed with, um, off and on over the next few years, uh, when I was 13 and a half, I was staying at a motel in Philadelphia where a transvestite prostitute and one of their Johns uh, kicked in my motel room, beat me and raped me and left me for dead. Um, my best friend found me. I woke up in the hospital with 14 stitches in my butt and a jaw wired shut. Um, wow. And uh, when I got kicked out at 12, I, I kind of almost, I mean, I had already been exposed to my, my older brother was a pretty bad drug addict and alcoholic. He's got about five years on me ahead of like older than me. Um, so I had already been exposed to what shooting up was, um, what cocaine was. I'd already been drunk. I, I, you know, I smoked pot for the first time when I was six years old. Uh, I started drinking around 11, but um, when I got kicked out of my house, me and my friend were looking for some cocaine and we ended up running into a heroin dealer. And, uh, first time I did it, I was like, man, I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do forever. Um, <laughs> it mm. shut everything up. It mm. took all the pain. It shut up all the voices. It made me feel confident. It made me feel like I wasn't such a piece of shit. Uh, because even though I did nothing at all to deserve any of the stuff that happened to me, that doesn't matter to your head. In my head, it was all my fault. If I hadn't done this, if I hadn't done that, if I'd have been better at this, or if I'd have done this better, um, you know. Plus, on the fact that for from six to twelve, you know, the, some of the most formative years of your life, uh, as far as developmentally, I was being told that I was a worthless piece of shit. It was never going to be nothing but a junkie convict like his father, <laughs> you know. So yeah, tainted. Yeah, you you believe that it becomes very much. You know, and like you, like for myself, I, I spent the rest of like my days almost like trying to prove them right. Um, New Jersey sucked. Uh, I got into a motorcycle accident my after my senior year of high school. Um, I broke 27 bones, was in a coma for 73 days, was in traction for eight and a half weeks. Uh, I had to learn how to walk again. Um, and I got a settlement check and I took my girlfriend at the time to our first dead show and uh grateful dead show. And uh, <laughs> I met some punk rock hippie kids and cause I was a hardcore punk rock kid in the eighties. Uh, As was the culture show. Yeah. Heavy metal, uh, punk rock, you know, the growing up in the Reagan era, you know, it's made some good music. You know what I mean? There's some good. Yeah. Music. Ramones, black flag. Yes. Dead Kennedy. Circle jerks. Yep. 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 Minor threat, you know, like, and, and so like when she was like, I was like, I'll take you to do anything you want to do, whatever you want to do within driving distance. She was like, I want to go to the dead show at the spectrum in Philly. And I was like, anything but that. I was like, I am not trying to go see some burnout. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
And I said I would. So we went, we got tickets and, uh, and I met some punk rock kids on the lot and uh, I smoked uh, good weed for the first time. Um, kind bud. I thought it was laced. Like they all started <laughs> laughing at me. I, I, I smoked it and I was like, oh my God, what is this? They're like weed. I was like, what's it laced with? They're like weed. I'm like, oh my God. I didn't want to be a heroin addict anymore. Um, after the act, like, right. so my senior year in high school, I kind of got on track. I got off heroin. I was just drinking and smoking weed and trying to just do the high school thing. Cause I, I was really good baseball player. I wanted to go to, I wanted to get a ride for baseball. Mm. Uh, I got a ride to Rutgers and, uh, it was a walk-on scholarship because I didn't actually graduate because I didn't have enough credits. I had to do GD thing and all this, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But I still got my walk-on and it was like two weeks before the start of the academic school year when I got my accident. So uh, I was on painkillers, obviously, because I was just in the major car, you know, motorcycle accident. Um, but I didn't want to be on them anymore. And uh, so I went to these shows and I met these kids. And back then, back in the 90s and the 80s, uh, there used to be Grateful Dead business cards, and on the front it said mm. "One Night Run Dead," and it was like "Next Show," "Next Venue," "Next Blah Blah Blah," and you could call that, and it would tell you where the next three shows were and what city they were in, uh, the dates they were on. So this kid Sprocket, he hands me one of these cards. He's like, "Here's my business card, bro. You always be able to find me." And uh, I was like, "Nah, I can't leave. I got a baby because I had a kid when I was a teenager." And uh, my lady didn't want to go. I wanted to go, but she didn't want to go. And like yeah. they left after three days. And after three days, man, I was hooked. I mean, I swallowed that hook. They were, it was just a matter of getting me in the boat. And uh, yeah, I left like three days after they did. And I caught up with them in Wisconsin. I never looked back. Um, wow. I had lost custody of my daughter um, just be from being a fuck up, you know, addict and junkie. Um, I was literally, I think, to my knowledge, you know, and I was – I grew up there. I was the first homeless person in my hometown since the depression. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and everybody knew it and nobody talked about it because when I got kicked out, I had, I grew up around with a bunch of kids in school who were in the system. And in, in, in New Jersey, it's called DIFUS division of youth and family services. And it's called DIFUS for short. I didn't want to be involved in DIFUS because DIFUS is, they had a routine. If you were from South New Jersey and you had her horrible parents and they took you away from your parents and put you in a foster home all the way on the other side of the state. And I didn't want that. So I told my dad, I said, check this out. I said, I'll leave and I won't say nothing. But as far as everybody knows, I still live here. And uh, and he was cool with that because he didn't want the system knocking on our door. You know what I mean? And uh, right, and it, was, it was this beautiful lie that worked for everybody, right? Um, mm. And uh. So fast forward, I end up in Boulder, Colorado um, in 1994. I meet my best friend and the people who are still some of my closest friends today. Uh, but it was a short amount of time, you know, as addiction always works. Uh, it wasn't even a year and I was in Boulder and I was, I was strung out. Um, I went to San Francisco to some dead shows and I got really high on a lot of LSD and someone was like, Oh, Hey man, heroin makes it, makes you come down. And I was like, sign me up. Mm. And, uh, and I was off to the races within a few months. I was selling anywhere between three quarter pounds of, um, heroin and cocaine every three days for the Tijuana cartel. Um, no way. 
Yeah, I, I was I was off I was off the deep end, and uh, and yeah. I just man, I was running, I was running at full speed, and I was raised Catholic, so in the back of my mind, there's always that if if you kill yourself, you're going to go to hell because there's no way to redeem yourself for suicide. Mm. It's like the, mm. the unforgivable sin, right? And uh, but I wanted to die. I knew that I couldn't stop, and I didn't want to go to jail, so I just put the pedal to the floor and didn't look back and and took about two years. And I was up to doing about three and a half to five grams of heroin a day. I was doing about a half ounce of cocaine a day. I weighed about 140 pounds. Um, yeah, it was all bad. Uh, and you know, I got busted. Um, I got busted with 27 federal indictments and a RICO act, uh, organized crime. Shit. And it saved your life, didn't it? 26 people got arrested in three states because they had, they, 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 my dope was under investigation for 15 months before they figured out it was me because I was just living the homeless life. I had a house that I had bought um, in South Boulder, but I didn't ever stay there. I had this little $200 a month room up on the hill in Boulder that I dealt out of, but I didn't sell heroin. I sold weed and mushrooms and I fronted out all the heroin to other people. Like people who sold weed for me, they would come dope sick and I'd be like, oh, hey, come on, I'll buy you some. And I'd go to the people who were selling my shit and buy some like because I didn't want anybody to know it was me. Yeah. And uh, when they finally figured out it was me, man, they bugged everything within a quarter mile of my house because I didn't use a landline. I used pay phones. Um, nobody came to my house house except for the people that I fronted to. Um, I had a little Volkswagen rabbit that they put a tracker on. And they tracked me to the old airport in Denver, Stapleton, and watched me get on a flight to California. And, uh, you know, this is pre-9-11. I knew there was a, an, air, uh, an airline company in Colorado. I think it was called – I think it was called North I, – I, I don't remember what it was called. But I know it was $69 one way, so it was like 170 bucks or 140 bucks, 150 bucks round trip to Oakland from Colorado Springs. And uh, so I would catch a little flight down to Colorado Springs and then boom, jump from Colorado Springs to California, put all the dope in my pocket. I was literally oh in my God. pocket. I would get on the plane and I knew all the stewardesses. I was always throwing around tips. And I, uh, for a large majority of my life, I collected comic books and I used to send them home to my mom. Uh, so she would catalog them and box them for me at her house in New Jersey. So I would go out and I would take comic books with me and, and it explained I had all these stewardesses because it was usually the same three on every flight because I, 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 I planned it that way when I, my trips and uh, they thought that I was like this comic book guru who was like making millions <laughs> of dollars selling comic books because I always had this big wad of cash, but I was, I was a licensed, you licensed. were a great manipulator is what you were. Yes. And uh, the great con man. They got yeah. me with uh, 27 federal indictments and a RICO act. And, um, I beat it on a technicality. Uh, they busted me. Um, there was a there was some kind of border dispute going on in around Labor Day '96 between the Tijuana cartel and the Sinaloa cartel, which the Sinaloa cartel would end up taking it over. Um, and this is when the two uh, brothers, um, Peter and Jay Flores, would be pushing yes. drugs for 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 um, El Chapo Guzman. Yep, yep, yep. Well, no, no. Uh, Chapo was in charge of Sinaloa. He wanted Tijuana. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Yep. yep. And uh, 
I didn't know all this, you know, I'm just a junkie in Colorado, you know what I'm saying? I go out to California, meet my dude who's a gangbanger. He was a member of the 18th Street Sureños out of uh, East LA. Yeah. And they were oh, like the Dios football cartel. And uh, man, when I met the when I met the guy from the, the representative from the cartel, uh, he interviewed me like it was a job. And uh, he asked for personal references. I gave him my mom's phone number and address and my dad's and he called them right there and was just like, Hey, we're interviewing your son for a job interview. We think he's a really good candidate. We just want to make sure he is who he is. And da, 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 da. after they were done, they were like, cool. We know who your mom is. We know who your dad is. We know where they are. We know how to reach them. If you rip us off, snitch on us or fuck us in any way, we will kill them. Then we will kill you. Okay. I'm from a working class Irish family. I got a big family. So snitching was off the table when I got busted. I sat in a federal holding room. It was like an interview room with an air mattress and a uh, TV that had a v VCR in it with a bunch of movies. They were bringing me like fast food three times a day. They take me out once an hour to smoke. They were bringing me methadone. They were like grooming me. They wanted me to snitch. My lawyer fi finally finds mm. me after four days because um, I had a really good lawyer on retainer. I had 50000 of my dollars in his safe to make sure that I, you know, got out of anything. Mm -hmm. He walks into the room and the first words out of his mouth are, you're fucked. And I was like, <laughs> he was like, you better start talking. I said, you're looking at 986 years. Son of a bitch. The way federal sentencing works is it's done on the point system. Well, once the RICO Act, is, uh, Organized Crime Act is involved, then they take the highest point of every felony that you have and they add it all together. Yeah. And then there's like some other multiplier, depending upon like circumstances in the case. And so with my, all mine together, I'm looking at a thousand years, just shy of a thousand years. And I'm like, well, I bought the ticket, you know, like I, I knew that this was a possibility. I'm not a snitch. You know, it's just not in my blood. Uh, I used to get my ass beat by my mom for tattling on my brother. I don't tell. Um, it's just not in my blood. So we sat there for a few days combing over this uh, warrant. And he left it with me. Um, I think it was the third end of the third day. And he left it with me. And there was this one, the front page of the warrant. There was just something that like every time we read it just didn't sit with me. So he comes back the next morning and I said, hey, this right here. I says, it says warrant to be served on the dwelling or occupancy owned by Thomas Francis Toll Jr. That's my birth name. Um, that's in my book and I'll explain that in a little bit. Um, I said, what if the house isn't in my name? And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, well, I said, I used to date this girl and I was friends with her grandma. Now her grandma's in the state hospital because she had a mental breakdown and she ain't ever getting out. I was like, so I put in her name. I was like, and I just put $200 on her books every month to pay rent. And he's like, his eyes lit up like the Rockefeller Plaza Christmas tree, man. And he said, I'll be back. We went to court two days later. They went into chambers. The federal prosecutor stomped his feet, barked. This is an atrocity of law. And the judge told him, he says, well, do your due diligence next time and make sure that all your T's are crossed and your eyes are dotted. And he was like, case dismissed. Boom. Damn. 27 people, including myself, walked out of three state federal courtrooms because every warrant was pinnacle on mine. Every other warrant that was served was based off of the warrant that hey, was served on <laughs> Hugely. My reward was the cartel, this is what I believe, is they didn't kill me. 
<laughs> uh, <laughs> but as I'm leaving the courtroom, there's two Boulder County sheriffs and they're like, we have a warrant for your arrest. And I'm like, for oh, what? No. They're like possession of schedule one controlled substance. So I'm like, here we go. They take me to Boulder County jail. <clears throat> Allegedly. Now, remember, I told you I was doing about five grams of heroin a day. My cottons in my spoon had more than a quarter gram in them. They told oh, me they no. found of a gram, a little tiny piece of heroin in the change pocket of my jeans when they were searching my clothes and booking. And they were charging me with a class, uh, class five felony. They gave me three years in prison for that. So that set off my prison career of the next 10 years. I was out for a total of about eight months. Um, I kept going back with one and two years or violating parole. Um, I have eight felony convictions all for a total of three tenths of a gram of heroin. And it's dirty spoons, dirty needle. Every time I get busted with a dirty spoon or a dirty needle, it give me possession under a gram. Classics felony in Colorado. Now, keep this in mind. In the state of Colorado, if you're busted with four grams of heroin now as personal use, it's a misdemeanor. Whoa. They won't do nothing. Sad. They won't do nothing about my record, right? That's freaking sad. It is. It's a, it, it, it's horrible. But uh, at the end of that ten years, the last time I went back, um, I got out August twenty third of August twenty eighth of two thousand four, and by October twenty third, I was sitting back and booking with a brand new felony. Uh, 60 pounds lighter than I was two months before. And uh, <clears throat> in Boulder County Jail, you get bracelets so you can order your commissary. But it takes a few days mm -hmm. to go through classification to figure out what your security level is going to be. I hadn't even had my bracelet yet, and I had a crate full of commissary and hygiene because going to Boulder County Jail for me at this point was like going to a family reunion. And they were like, <laughs> oh, my God, what do you need? Here you go, man, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just laying there dope sick. And I have this, what in AA we call a moment of clarity, because I identify with Alcoholics Anonymous because 99% of my relapses began because I thought I could drink. Yeah. Um, and okay. AA was there for me in the beginning. So mm -hmm. I will always be, and plus Heroin Anonymous, we work out of the AA big book. Um, right. But, uh, and I'm laying there and I had this moment of clarity and I'm like, man, you are way too, you're way more comfortable in here than out there because in here it's safe like in, in in inside the prison walls for someone who has never been able to trust anyone their entire life prison's like the only place in the world where your word really still counts like if you don't have your word on a prison yard if you don't if you're not an integrous person who does what they say they're going to do then you're a piece of shit you got nothing you're a loner who is a victim so mm -hmm. And convicts have a certain code. We don't violate women, children, or elderly. We don't, I mean, we don't victimize women, children, or elderly, but everything else is on the table. You know what I mean? So like that kind of defines who a good dude is in prison. If you're not a pedophile, if you're not a rapist, if you didn't jack somebody or your own grandmother, um, and you're not a snitch and your word is good. So I started thinking about this and I was like, man, I need to really change my paradigm around the way I'm thinking about life. Um, but I didn't quite yet identify with the alcoholic part of my story. So for the next year, I went ended up going back to prison. Um, I changed my whole thing because when I had 
been in prison before, I was the dude hustling on the yard. If there was somebody talking shit, I was the one who fought them. Uh, in prison, we call it a bullet. You just point your gun, and I was the bullet that shot out of it. Wow. And uh, mm, mm. I was like, this is my life. You know, I need to build a name for myself in here so that when I get old, too old that I can't do this anymore, I won't need to. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, that's a fucked up way to think. Just Maybe. sidebar, <laughs> anybody yeah. out there who is, you know, anybody out there who's listening to this, who is institutionalized or thinking there's no way out, there's easily a way out and we're going to get there. Uh, just keep hanging there. Uh, but like I said, I, I, in the back of my mind, I was like, well, I'll be okay. Just as long as I drink, you know, I'm not gonna do heroin anymore. Cause I know what heroin leads to. And you know, I'm cool when I drink I, blah, 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 blah. This was the narrative that I said to myself in prison for a year. Um, you know, I was going to AA meetings. I didn't fight anymore. Like, uh, <laughs> even the chief of security, the day I hit the yard, she's like, so who's on my yard? She was like, is it the dumbass or is it the person that I hear is trying to change his life? I said, I'm trying to change my life. Within two months of being on that yard, I was the person who cleaned the warden's office. That's how much a change I made. Wow. And uh, <clears throat> so I got paroled early for the first time ever in my life. Because <laughs> usually they're like, you got two years. I'm like, all right, cool. See you in two years, everybody. You know, <laughs> like it was like, it was like that. And uh, I got out November 1st. By November 3rd, I was smoking pot. By November 5th, I was drinking. By Thanksgiving, I was strung out. And they're, they're illegal in Colorado now, thank God. But there used to be these drinks that you could get at the head shops where you just drink it and wait about an hour and you drink a liter of water. And then when you peed, like the water, it like turned all your insides basically into gelatin that secreted all of the stuff that needed to be in your urine to show that it was actually real urine, like creatine and different amino acids and stuff like that. Mm, mm. So I was pissing clean for my UAs on parole, but I was losing weight at an alarming rate. And my parole officer was like, what's going on? What's going on? He's like leaving me messages at my house. I'm on an ankle monitor uh, on house arrest. Like one of those ones where you got the box in your house and you got the monitor and you can't go a hundred feet from your house. The liquor store across the street, the front door that opened that I could take one step inside was 99 feet from my house or 99 yards from my house. I had a hundred yard range. So I'd go and I'd be like, hand them a list and they'd go get it. I'd give them cash and I'd walk home, but I was allowed to leave from seven to seven, seven AM to 7 PM. So that's when I go get my dope and do my hustling or or go to work. And uh, I had my parole. I was, I was manufacturing documents on Google word. I was copying and pasting hospital letterhead and, forging doctor signatures uh, of real oncologists from Boulder County, Boulder Community Hospital and uh, CU Campus Hospital in Denver. I had my parole officer and my job convinced that I had a tumor on the diaphragm of my stomach and that when I ate or drank, it caused me to vomit and I couldn't hold anything down. That's why I was losing weight. That's why I looked so bad because I was fighting cancer, blah, blah, blah. So I had like my dude, my parole officer is like, I got my prayer group praying for you. Like, I'm like, oh <laughs> I mean, I can laugh about it now. Him and I have laughed. He, he passed on, but uh, him and I laughed about it, you know, later on. But um, I wake up on my birthday, which is in January. And we had had a party the night before, which 
the chick I was renting a room from was like 21. Her boyfriend was 19. There was a bunch of high school kids. I mean, this house was like, it looked like something out of a movie. Like people looked were laid out like slats on the floor. Oh, um, empty bottles everywhere. Oh, I forgot to mention the fact that not only was I on the ankle monitor and house arrest, but I lived nine blocks away from the parole office. <laughs> and uh, I had another moment of clarity. And I was like, what am I doing? I was like, you're going to end up in prison for the rest of your life. And I went to my parole officer and I said, hey, I told him the whole story about everything that had been going on, what I've been lying about. He was so in disbelief that he had me go immediately across the street to the halfway house and do a, one of them little dipstick UA tests. Man, I came back hot for everything but, barbi but barbiturates. I was hot for cocaine, meth because I was doing ecstasy, heroin, cocaine, THC. Oh and he was like, dude, he was like, you're good. He was like, you had us fooled. He's like, if you would have played this out for the next eight months, you would have walked off free. And I was like, I know. I was like, that's why I'm here. And uh, he sent me to detox. There was a bunch of stuff that led up to that, but can't tell everything in the book. But I ended up in detox. And in detox, I ended up meeting my first sponsor. Um, I come out of like a three or four day withdrawal stupor. And I have these business cards with just the name Raymond, call anytime with like happy smiley face emojis on it. And I'm like, oh my, and a phone number. And I'm like, oh my God, I met a new drug dealer. I like tear them up, throw them away. <laughs> Later on that night, this like total like metrosexual, like almost like a runway model looking dude, but like in his fifties, like <laughs> comes walking in like, Hey, what's up, bro? How you doing? And I'm like, do I know you? He's like, it's Raymond. And I'm like, bro, I was like, I appreciate you, man. I was like, but I'm really trying to get my shit together. He starts laughing. He's like, do you not remember me? I'm like, no, bro. I was like, I don't. And he starts laughing. He was like, well, I'm your sponsor. And he hands me a big book. And I'm like, and I was like, I was like, oh my God. I was like, okay. And we sat down and we talked. Uh, the detox that I was in was part of a mental health facility, but not facility, but like a complex on the corner of, uh, on a corner in Boulder and his cleaning company did all the after hours cleaning. So while they were working, he was on site supervisor. He would just come over to the detox and hang out and talk to drunks. And, uh, like he was like a living 12 stepper and, uh, <laughs> and we great. love it. Yeah, <laughs> we talked. Absolutely. And he, um, him and this other guy who worked there, they would bring me copies of like, um, Joe and Charlie tapes or, um, oh, Don Pritz tapes or, um, Mickey Musset or like tapes of like, uh, Dr. Bob speaking, um, or, or Bill Wilson speaking. And they were like grainy. Listen, like sound like listen to old records on like an old phonograph. Yeah. I like, love that sound. That I analog sound. Sponge, bro. I was sucking it up. And, oh, uh, wonderful. Man, yeah, it was awesome. It was amazing. And I, I just, I just, I just fell in love with the program and, you know, like <sighs> when you have a raw story, it hits a lot of people and it does more people want to hear it yeah. and they want you to like show up and share it. And, uh, mm -hmm. I got kind of put on a pretty high pedestal with a group of friends in AA. And then um, some things happened and uh, my past caught up with me and I ended up catching a felony in sobriety for something that I had done almost 10 years prior. Wow. And, uh, oh, come on. But I was, when I was in New Jersey taking care of my mom, uh, which was a miracle in and of itself. Um, but 
uh, Louisville Police Department called me in Louisville, Colorado. And uh, it's, it's in Boulder County. And they're like, hey, this is Louisville Police Department. And I was like, hey, are you calling about the email that I sent John? Is what had happened was <clears throat> almost 10 years prior, I was living with someone who was in the program with me. And he was an active alcoholic. And he was in Las Vegas gambling his life away and wouldn't answer the phone and wouldn't pay his rent. So we went to his room, took a deposit slip and a check out of his checking book, deposited $800 into his account and wrote a check for 1200 and paid the rent because his portion was a fourth of a third of the 1200 10 years later, 10 years later, not quite, but almost 2008. I remember it on a, when I'm driving to New Jersey, so I stop at a truck stop, buy an internet card and, uh, and I send this email and I'm like, Hey man, whatever you want me to do to make this right. I was like, blah, 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 blah. I was like, but I did forge your name and I forgot to tell you about it. It's weighing on me. I don't want to drink. God. And uh, you call the fucking cops. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they call me and they're like, you're admitting to it. I was like, well, yeah, you obviously have the email. I was like, it's an amends. It's a nice step. I said, I would do whatever it is that he wanted me to do. I was like, if this anyway, is what he wants me to do, right? then this is what I'm doing. That's right. How, how important is my sobriety? Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Fortunately, uh, a bunch of people went to bat and I just got probation and I successfully completed it ahead of time. They kicked me off. They're like, dude, go home. You don't need to be here. <laughs> it's like, you know. Thank God. But I was pretending. I was being honest outwardly and telling everybody all my raw shit because like, oh, yeah, you know, like I'm, I'm fucking Joe Recovery. You know what I mean? I came from this <laughs> far. Look at me now. And yeah. People were like, oh, if you want what we have, do what we do. And I was like, okay, well, I want what this guy has. And he's got a wife and kids and a house and a mortgage. And so does this guy and this guy and this guy. So I started dating seriously. And uh, I met a woman, fell in love with her kids, uh, which I thought meant that I was in love with her too. We ended up getting married. Uh, And at the same time, I had invested some money in a medical marijuana dispensary and at this point, two years in, I was making between like fifteen and twenty-five thousand dollars a month. Plus, I was playing poker professionally on the cash circuit around the country, um, speaking at AA meetings and HA conferences and conventions and stuff. And man, I thought I was the shit. Oh yeah. And then, I, and then in 2010, Colorado changed the law, said felons can't have nothing to do with it anymore, and they took my business away. And my business partners fucked me out of all the money that they owed me, and my wife cheated on me. <laughs> and Triple whammy. Kind of funny sense of humor, doesn't he? <laughs> oh, shit. That's I, uh, called a hat uh, trick. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's uh, my 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 wife goes to uh, adult children of of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, and uh, you know, I've always heard the saying that God will never give you more in a day than you can handle. Well, they added to it. They said, but He rarely gives you less. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I can relate to that, you know, <laughs> and. Uh, so for the next, I don't know, eight, 10 months, I was in a prelapse. Um, everything ended with me relapsing like two weeks before my six year anniversary. Um, and it was a roller coaster, man. It was, it was, I didn't want to sell drugs. I burned through my savings within like four or five weeks. Um, so I started pawning off my possessions, um, that I had saved from the foreclosure, uh, I had a $1.25 million house that we bought on short sale for like 450,000. It got foreclosed, like my new truck, her, uh, 
what are they called? Mini Cooper. Like, I mean, <laughs> we were living way, way, we weren't living above our means, but we were like living ghetto fabulous. Like, right. <laughs> absolutely. Mm. Like, there was no <laughs> real savings. I didn't start saving until she cheated on me. And I, I was, to me, that was the beginning of the end. I'm like, so I just started scrolling money away that she didn't know about. Yeah. And, uh, so as I'm pawning off my possessions, uh, I pawned a bike that I had bought while I was on, uh, when I was married and sober and it turned out to be stolen. And they said, the DA said with my criminal record, there was no way that I had no knowledge that the bike was stolen. Apparently some guy, some family went or something, went on a six month cruise and their house got robbed. And the guy who robbed their house, like sold all their shit on Craigslist on a fake account. Jesus. And uh, so when I took the bike to the police station to have it registered, it came back clean. And, uh, but I go to jail for a few months, get out, relapse again, go to my probation officer. And I'm like, Hey, can I get clean? I go to the halfway house to get a bed there. And, uh, I ended up getting arrested for something that happened a year prior. <laughs> and when I got out of jail, I was, I stayed clean for a few weeks and then I relapsed again. And, um, some things it's a long it's it's a long 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 story about what i think it was but something had changed inside my head on this relapse where heroin didn't work anymore see when i first did heroin back in 1996 i've always viewed heroin as a woman as as a feminine kind of chaotic energy and uh i've always called her my mistress and for 27 years she was faithful because we had this agreement. She said, I will take away all the pain. I will take, I will numb all the hurt, silence all the voices. And in return, you just have to give me everything. Hmm. And I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> Where do I sign? You know? And I signed in blood. And, uh, hmm. and now to fast forward, I'm 39 years old, 27 years in. And every time I get high, the voices get louder hmm. and the hurt is deeper. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And for the first time in my life, I really started contemplating taking my own life. And uh, it wasn't because I was depressed. It wasn't because, like, you know, I'd been sober. I'd lived with the voices. You know what I mean? I knew that there was other ways around it. My thing was, is I didn't think I could ever stay sober. I didn't think mm. that I could ever stay clean. And uh, because I really, truly believed in my heart that I was one of those people that it says and how it works, that it was in constant or incapable of being honest with themselves. Mm. And, uh, there are such unfortunates. There are such unfortunates. Uh, and I didn't think that I was at fault, you know, and I believed that I was one of those. And uh, so I spent a bunch of time up in the foothills, up in the mountains, meditating and praying and asking for a sign that I was making the wrong decision and nothing came. If anything, I felt like I was being kind of, it almost felt like this warm embrace was like, Nope, you're okay. You're, you're going to be all right. It's, it's, it's the right choice. And, uh, my dealer was an old friend of mine, someone I'd known for 20 plus years. Um, and I was homeless as I always am when I start to use because homeless people are invisible especially in Boulder. Um, Boulder has the best dressed and most classy homeless in the world. Um, <laughs> but uh, he would let me stay at his house when it snowed or rained really hard. And uh, so I decided that I was going to 
do myself in with an intentional overdose. Um, I always said up to this point that if there was ever a theme song for my life, it would be heroin by the velvet underground. It's my wife and it's my life. It'll be the death of me. And, uh, Ironically, Scott yeah. Wheeland would meet his sorry end at the same formula. Yeah. Uh, so I, I started praying for snow. And uh, on October 27th, 2013, it snowed. And uh, I went over to David's and I was like, hey, man, I got a custody who wants a couple grams in the morning. I was like, I'll come pay you. He's like, yeah, you're good, man. You know, Don't trip in front of me all the time. But at this point, I was like, I wasn't really doing anything. Like it was strictly maintenance. I was probably doing maybe a quarter gram every four or five days. Like it was just enough that I wasn't sick. I didn't want to be getting high anymore. And uh, because when I was high and the voices got louder, then I felt like even more of a piece of shit. So at this point, I just didn't want to be sick. There was no nod, no enjoyment whatsoever. And uh, so he fronted me the two grams and I was like, hey man, I was like, it's snowing. Do you mind if I crash? He's like, yeah, no. He's like, such and such are here too. And you know, and uh, they're upstairs right now. They'll be down. So they came down. We made dinner, watched a movie. They watched a movie. I sat there thinking about when is this movie going to be over so I can excuse myself to go take a bath. And I was thinking about what I was about to do. And uh, so the movie ended and they're like, hey, let's watch part two. And I was like, yeah, you guys go ahead. I was like, hey, I've seen it. Can I can I go take a bath? And, and uh, my boy's like, yeah, man, go ahead, go ahead. And uh, I went upstairs, I lit some candles because he was like, yeah, there's candles. And I had brought some candles just in case. And I made a playlist on my phone on Spotify and uh, ran the bath. And as soon as the bath was ready, I, I stuck my head out. I was like, hey, man, anybody need to use the head before I go in? And they're like, no, 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 you're good. And, uh, I had already fixed up the two shots. I got in the tub, hit play on the playlist. And last thing I remember is just fading out, listening to the Velvet Underground. And uh, thankfully, by the grace of God um, and a host of angels that were there to meet me, uh, it was not my time. Like, they were angry. Like, I remember seeing female faces. Like, that's a whole other story of who I think they were, but <laughs> that's in the book. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, they looked angry that I was there. You know what I mean? Like, I felt like almost like they were looking at me like, what the fuck are you doing here? You like, it is bad, not bad your time. Things. Yes. Yeah. And, um. I felt like there was a battle raging around me. Mm. Um, and like later through a lot of meditation and like really introspection, I feel like I was being surrounded by past selves and they were like fighting off this horde of demons who were like there to collect my soul. Mm. And uh, mm. I woke up and there's my friends above me, like crying, hugging, oh my God. Like, you know, and uh, the next morning I went and turned myself in because I was on the run from probation because you never feel like such a failure as the morning after a failed suicide attempt, but Interesting. something hit. I can relate. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry to hear that, but I, but you understand. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, something had changed. Like I knew kind of, at least in my head at this point that I would eat a bullet before I ever put a needle in my arm again. And uh, I said, I'm not going to be able to do that out here because temptation is too great and I am too weak. Uh, I can't do this on my own. I was like, God, please give me the strength just to get the probation. And I hitchhiked and I started getting sick and I got picked up by this dude who literally was on his way from the parole office. Actually, he was on his way from the dispensary because um, he had just got off parole 
And he was like, bro, you look like shit. I was like, I'm kicking heroin. He's like, dude, he was like, here. And he handed me some weed and I just smoked bowls. And I was like, thank you, God. This is what I needed to get me to probation. And I got there and I was sitting outside because I didn't want to go inside because I knew if I went inside, they were going to arrest me. And she came out for her lunch and she was like, what are you doing here? She's like, she's like, you can't be here. She's like, I got to arrest you. And like, I had the greatest probation officer ever. She just wanted me to succeed. And like, she thought if she gave me enough chances, I would get my shit together. And like, so that's what I told her. I said, well, I said, you've given me enough rope to either hang myself or fucking tie it down. I said, and I don't want to live this life anymore. I said, and I don't know any other way to stop except to go to jail. And I was like, but I have one favor to ask you. I said, and you don't owe me nothing. So if you say no, it's cool. And she was like teary-eyed. And she's like, what is it? I said, I swore to myself I would never be dope sick in county jail again. Can I go to detox first? And she was like, yup. She was like, here, wait here. She came out. She gave me a McDonald's. Yeah. She, uh. (laughs) She gave me a Subway gift card and a bus pass. And she was like, here, she's like, please go eat. Cause you look like you haven't eaten in a hundred years. Mm. She's like, and she's like, go to the hospital. She's like, and I'm going to tell them that you're coming. Just, she's like, can you get there in an hour? I said, I could walk there in an hour. She's like, okay, cool. She was like, I'm counting on you. I was like, and I won't let you down. And, uh, I went to Subway. I got a sandwich. I ate it drank soda on the way, got on the bus, went there. They put me in a locked room, kept me in a locked room until a locked van came and got me and took me to a locked detox. And I stayed there for five days and I called her and I said, I'm ready to go. And she said, okay. She said, can I trust you? And I said, yep. She said, okay. She said, they'll give you bus fare to Fort Collins. Come see me. I went and saw her and uh, I didn't get high and I went to jail. And uh, there's actually on my, on my social media, there's a picture of my last mug shot nine years ago. And uh, me, me holding my nine-year coin, um, but uh, congratulations! And over the next year, I so for the first five years of my sobriety, right? I because I don't discount that time; it didn't go away. I just had to do some more research. You know what I mean? Like in my eyes, I got sixteen years sober with a break in the middle. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but I have learned you a lot. Spiritual in the spiritual awakening. Absolutely. And, and you know, it even says, like we say in the program all the time, there's nothing worse than a head full of AA and a belly full of beer. Yeah. It sucks, you know? Yeah. And so I had all that. I had worked the steps five times. I had all this personal insight that like, I don't know, everything I'm telling you about, I knew all of this, right? But what was missing was the forgiveness because mm. – Resentment is the number one offender. And I can talk about it till the day is long. But if I still hold a grudge against this person, or if I still. You're talking about your family from before? I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about from on the day I was born, I was taken away from my mother because my butthole was too small. I couldn't poop. And they took me into another state in Pennsylvania for the first month of my life. So for the first month of my life, I got to see my mom for 30 minutes. Hmm. Like what? that's like, if, if you know anything about trauma, that's, that's trauma right there. That's like, they, they like, mm-hmm. we know now through all the stuff that we know about birthing and stuff that like the first hour, like they don't even interrupt the mom and the baby. Cause that's really crucial bonding time. That first couple months, you know what I mean? Um, so I really had to look, first of all, I had to learn how to get over myself right. and, uh, cause I had all this ego. Like I believe there's big E ego and there's little E ego. 
little ego is like, yep, I built that house. I'm proud of it. You know, like, yeah, that's my kid that hit a home run. Or like, I've got nine years sober. I've done the work to get here. That's okay. My ego was like, I, I was putting myself above God. I thought that it was all me and that it was me who did it. And that's what led me to going out because I stopped going to meetings because people were like, Hey, what's going on with you? And I'm like, fuck you, do your own inventory. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, so I'm different meetings and then like, you know, I don't, I'm like, I'm kind of socially awkward, you know, especially if I'm sober. So like, I won't go to new meetings. So I just stopped going to meetings. You know, we all know how that anybody in 12 step knows how that works out. You know, yeah. you ask anybody, usually around the nickels, mm. 5, 10, 15, 20. Why'd you go out? Well, I stopped going to meetings. Uh, so, like I said, there, there was one AA meeting a week that I went to in the jail because um, we had to, because I got into a, it's called a therapeutic community. It's like a rehab inside of jail. Um, and I had a sponsor who came and was working the steps with me, but I focused more on going inward. Uh, I am a philosophy major and psychology and I really love Carl Jung and I love the whole concept of doing shadow work. So I, uh, I started journaling. Like I, I was a fiend for journaling. Like I was a fiend for heroin. Um, I wrote probably anywhere from four to six hours a day in my journal. Uh, I meditated anywhere from four to six hours a day. I used to sit on the jail yard while dudes were playing basketball and volleyball around me next to this tree and meditate with headphones on and my eyes closed, trying to learn, listening to uh, really loud classical music, just trying to learn how to block out everything outward and only focus and listen to what's inward. And I imagine myself, I'm not a very visual person, so I, I kept it simple. Like um, there's a really good TV series, uh, from a few years ago that if you guys ever are binge watchers or anything, you should check it out. It's called Mr. Robot. It, oh, uh, yes, with uh, Rami Malek. Yes, it dives so deep into and, mental health. And, uh, and Christian Slater. Yes, yep, yes. and uh, Check it out, Danny. It's a brilliant show. Brilliant. It really helped me understand my mental health. Um, that and the movie Split by M. Night Shyamalan. Oh my golly. So I can't watch that thing again. I've come to realize in my life that there are there's more than one me. There's little Tommy Toll, who is the little child inside of me who just wanted nothing more than his mom to love him and not beat him, his stepmom, you know, and for his dad to rescue him. So he built this wall. And then there's you know, there's the the the, the teenage years when I had to when I was this scared, weak teenager who was a liar and a weasel who just wanted people to like him and then then there was the me who when i went on grateful dead tour who all of a sudden found himself and became like peter pan to a group of lost boys and like all of a sudden had this group of people who looked to me for leadership and like so there was these different parts who had these different roles and when i was able to identify them and understand them then I was able to envision us sitting around a campfire yeah. and I envisioned behind each section, the different parts of the trauma of my life, the shadows looming over these pieces of me. And I stayed in meditation and journaling until I was the one who held the conch around that fire. And until the light had been made bright enough that there were no more shadows. Um, I remember sitting 
in these classrooms with these old school convicts who had taught me how to do time and taught me that we don't victimize women, children, and elderly, and you don't tell, and you stick to your word. And <clears throat> they're crying because their parents molest or their babysitters molested them or their parents beat them or their siblings tease them or whatever. But I'm like watching these men that I respected and I'm like, hold on, I can cry. Like I'm allowed to do that. And, uh, because I had told myself when I was 12 years old, I was like, you can't cry. Cause if you ever cry again, it'll never stop. Oh. And we're watching Brene Brown videos and I'm crying, listening to Brene Brown talk about vulnerability. It was a great strength <laughs> and not a weakness. And then we watched this old VHS tape of this guy who looked like a porn star from the seventies talking about, uh, You'll never truly be able to recover from any kind of trauma until you are able to change how you tell the story around it, and especially to yourself. He talked about taking taking ourselves and looking at our lives as a third-party objective viewer, like a movie, like a critic, like a movie critic, mm. and finding where do we need to find forgiveness? Where do we need find for other people? Where do we need to find forgiveness for ourselves? And we do this by what do we know about the other characters' backstories, right? Mm. So I started thinking, okay, well, what do I know about my stepmom? Yes, she was abusive. She, she was a piece of shit. But who is she? Who is she before I was in the picture? Well, what I knew was that her husband was an alcoholic teamster who used to go to work and come home and beat her and his kids. And my dad rescued her from that. Mm. So the narrative that I created for myself was that I – she viewed me as a threat to the family unit that I was the only monkey wrench in the system. I was the only cog in the wheel that didn't quite fit. And, uh, <clears throat> and through that, I was able to find forgiveness for her. I was able to look back on my dad, look at his military career. The fact that he had, you know, half a dozen kids through four different women and had been married like seven times or even, maybe even more. I don't even know the whole story, but he was a POW in Korea. He was shot in the leg and stabbed with a bayonet escaping from a POW camp while carrying a friend of his who couldn't walk. You know what I mean? Like, and like he was a special forces, green beret, airborne ranger, and he was trained to kill with impunity to feel nothing but the recoil of his gun. And I'm sad because he didn't know how to love me, his grandson who came along when he thought he was at the end of his kid career. You know what I mean? So there's all these factors that when I looked at them, I'm like, holy shit, it's got nothing to do with me. I just mm -hmm. happened to be the focal point of the aggression, of the rage, of the neglect, of the disassociation. And in finding forgiveness for them, I was able to find forgiveness for myself because I'm a personal believer that the first time I ever got dope sick and withdrew and then went chose to go back and get high again, that's my fault. Like addiction is a choice. When we're not using and we choose to get high, that's a choice. Now, once we get high, we kind of lose the choice of whether we get to stop or not. But mm. that first time is always a choice. You know, and it's not the last drink or drug. It's the first one. So I never really so wanted Rex, to blame let me anybody. Ask you. Yeah, Just yeah, yeah. Because, and sorry to interrupt. Um, no, no, no. Your story is, is, I mean, I haven't said a word for an hour because I'm just really <laughs> amazed by your story, really. 
and thank you for sharing it. Um, we're running a little short on time. I want to talk about the No Love Foundation. Okay, absolutely. Um, so um, when I wrote, I so it was through the love of my friends um, and God that I was able to get where I am today. My partner, my wife. When I wrote my book, um, this is one of the last. This is one of the last tattoos I got in prison. It says No Love, K N O W L O V E. I love it. <laughs> there I see it. <laughs> it's because it's, it's not very well done. It's kind of punk rock, but that's who I am. I'm not very well done. I'm kind of punk rock. And I started in my studies throughout my life. I've, I've learned that to know love is to know God, to know God is to know love. And uh, mm -hmm. I have decided I that, that I, was, I was a taker for almost three decades. So now I want to be a giver and I try to give myself in service. And so I wrote my book because the the pandemic hit. I had nothing better to do. I had been talking about it for years. So I finally put it on paper. I published it in January of this year. It's called No Love, A Memoir. Um, after being a guest on several podcasts to promote it, some people were like, hey, man, you should start your own podcast. You got a lot to say and people need to hear it. And I, so mm -hmm. me and my wife, we started um, because she has a very a lot of trauma and stuff from her life, you know, um, mm -hmm. and her past. So we started the podcast. It's called No Love. The memoir continues. Um, and we started a, a nonprofit foundation called No Love Foundation. Um, and we are a third party fundraiser for whatever it is we're working on. Um, and when I started promoting the book and the podcast, I got really involved in social media before it was just kind of keep in touch with friends and stuff. Um, yeah. and I got on TikTok and I kind of blew up a little bit kind of quick. I got like almost 15,000 followers in a few months. And, uh, this past June, I started seeing all these TikToks about men's mental health awareness month and started seeing the statistics about suicide rates in this country. Um, on average, 130 individuals a day take their own life, and 80% of that number is men. 70% oh of that number is middle-aged white men. Um, and, you know, like, uh, I, 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 I'm, I try not to be political, but, like, it kind of seems like white men are under attack in the media. Um, and you know, like, and I, I, I hate the patriarchy just as much as everybody else, but that's like 1% of a whole, you know, and then there's the other 99% of us that are out here who are just struggling, trying to feed our fucking families and trying not to get high or trying to get high or whatever, you know yeah. what I mean? But like, right. I, I started to feel like there was something that I could do to reduce that number because I've been there. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to feel like I can't cry. I can't talk about my feelings. I can't emote because that means that I'm weak and I'm, I'm not a man. You know what I mean? And that's, yeah. that's toxic masculinity is believing yeah. that men aren't allowed to show emotions that we're not allowed to cry. Yeah. I cry and often now, like it's yeah, called, so you know, Chris. he's always tearing yeah. up on all the time. If you, if, if you take Very much. E off the word emotion, what are you left with, right? If you take E off emotion, what are you left with? motion we have to allow our feelings to flow and crying is it's it's cleansing for the soul you know um so i started talking with the american foundation for suicide prevention and i started asking what i could do and they said well what do you think you can do and i said let me get back to you and i started researching what the longest recognized coast to coast trail is in the united states and it's about 4200 miles and i said i can do a thousand miles better than that and uh jesus 
So um, I've partnered with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And on June 25th of 2023, I will be departing from Seattle, Washington. Um, my next major destination will be San Francisco, California. And then from San Francisco, I'll be going to Denver. From Denver to Washington, D.C. And from Washington, D.C. to Miami. That's a 5,800-plus-mile bicycle ride across the United States from the furthest Northwest tip to the most Southern East tip. You know what? Uh, I might have to be at your final destination because I live in Florida. And nice. that is an amazing thing that you're doing. It's How are you oh, caring yeah. for this? Um, I am riding as much as I can. Um, Jesus. It sucks because I have to work and I'm partially disabled. Yeah. So I, I can't work a lot, but I'm having to work a lot more because life is not getting any cheaper. Um, so we have a GoFundMe set up, um, which 80% of the funds that we raise will go to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. The other 20% is to help me and my family train over the next seven months because um, my family is going to be my road crew. Um, we're we're going to document mm, the whole mm. thing and try and do a documentary. Um, we're just trying to raise as much awareness and as much money for outreach and cool. awareness as possible. You know, uh, this past July, we had legislation passed that there's no more big 10-digit number you got to dial if you're feeling suicidal. Now you can just dial 988, um, and wow. you don't even have to call. You could just text the word TALK to 741741, and someone will text you back. There are trained professionals and people who have been affected by suicide. They say every suicide affects at least six people. So if there's 130 people killing themselves every day, that's almost a thousand people every day that are being affected by someone's choice. And wow. women attempt suicide one and a half times more than men, but men succeed almost four times more than women. And mm. Killer, man. in 2020 alone, there was four, over 45,000 suicides. Uh, 2021 saw a, a little bit of a drop in that, which is a good thing. Um, we just want to keep on bringing it down. Um, you can right. go to our website, nolovefoundation.org, um, or you can go to ride for the number four life.org or no ride for life, USA.org, um, takes you to the same place, but the event is called ride for life, USA. Um, you can find out all the information there, um, show your support by donating or sharing, even just, you know, sharing the post is helping immensely because if. 10 people see it, then that's 10 people that would have never seen it. You know what I'm sure, saying? Sure, absolutely. You know, and everybody has a following these days, everybody, whether it's 100 on Facebook or if it's 100,000 on Instagram or a million on TikTok, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, I'm trying, I hope somebody out there hears this or knows somebody, but I'm trying to get Vanilla Ice or Owen Wilson to retweet or repost nice, one of our things. Nice. They both have experience with suicide attempts and opiates. Um, so right. you know what I mean? All it takes is for one, one big celebrity to retweet it. And then bam, you got a million people who are on board. So, That's really but cool. you know, if it's just me and my wife and my daughter next year doing the whole thing by ourselves, at least that I'll know that I had did my part, you know, and think uh, big, think big reverend. Think we're gonna, big. We're going to push out the message too. With God, oh, yeah. I, I fail. You know what I'm saying? Needless to say. It's yes. going to be exactly the way it's supposed to be, right? Absolutely. That is <laughs> what I've got to tell everybody in my life. It was meant to be any other way, then that's how it would be. Right. Always Reverend, right with the world because this is how it is. That's it. 
And Riff, uh, I've, I've got to thank you. You know, the, we do a lot of these interviews. I think this is around about our, our 20th one that we've done this year, Danny. Um, actually, but, we're on 31. 31. Jeez, Louise. But, <laughs> but very few this year have actually been so captivating. And yours is one of them. The first one I think that really brought us big, big emotion was Tim, Tim Largen. So from the bottom of both of our hearts, thank you so much for appearing on the show. We'd love to have you back at some given point or another. And a tremendous thank you to uh, you for tuning in. If you've missed out on the live stream, don't worry. You're more than welcome to check this out on demand, which is available on all the big platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Again, great thanks to Reverend Rex. I'm Chris Nell. That's Daniela Park. Remember, life is always better when you're doing life sober. Until next week that we meet, goodbye. Thank you, Reverend. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. God bless. Bye, Chris. God bless you.